1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Stephen Norris about a recent book he edited and also wrote three chapters for, Museums of Communism, New Memory Sites in Central and Eastern Europe, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2020. Welcome, Stephen.
0: Thank you, Jill. It's good to be here.
1: Dr. Norris received his PhD from the University of Virginia in Russian history in 2002. He is currently Walter E. Havighurst Professor of Russian History at Miami University, Ohio, where he teaches courses on genocide in the 20th century, the World Wars, and Russian, Eurasian, and Soviet history, as well as courses on history and literature. His publications include Blockbuster History in the New Russia, Movies, Memory, Patriotism, published with Indiana University Press in 2012, and A War of Images, Russian Popular Prints, Wartime Culture, and National Identity, 1812-1945, to which was published with Northern Illinois University Press in 2006. He has a forthcoming book entitled The History Painters, Art, History, and the Making of Russian National Identity, which is forthcoming with Bloomsbury in 2022. So, Stephen, this is quite an expansive book, both thematically and geographically and includes museums in the Baltics, Russia, East Central Europe, uh, with topics ranging from occupation to famine to uprising to the gulag, arcade games, and Stalin. So can you tell us how you came to edit this book, uh, as well as author three of its chapters, and why the interest in public representations of communism?
0: Well, thank you for the introduction, Jill. And I'll, I'll take the second question first, because it's the longer story and maybe more interesting story. Um, I, I guess in some ways, I first became interested in the public representations of communism when I was doing my dissertation research in Moscow in 1999. And when I first visited what had been called the graveyard of fallen statues, that's where all the statues removed after 1991 were taken. It's now the Park of Arts. It's a, the former Stalin statues there. The infamous statue of Dzerzhinsky is there, and it was the you know I think my first real encounter with the way in which communist era legacies were made public in a different format. And then of course that that graveyard of fallen statues was is and was in the location where the new Trudzhikov Gallery is, which opened in 1999. So I went there not long after it opened, and noticed as I went through the gallery that um, this is the 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 branch of the tretyakov gallery devoted to 20th century art. So I was going through the galleries and it ended more or less in 1930. So the in part because of economics, they couldn't open all the halls yet, but in part because the Tretzikov authorities hadn't yet decided what to do post 1930 with the introduction of socialist realism. In, in other words, how do you post communism in, in post-communism, how do you deal with the legacies of communist art? Um, so it was just empty. The 20th century ended in 1930, and that really got me thinking about how you know difficult it was using public spaces and sites to narrate or work through the communist past. I mean, subsequently, I've been back to the New Tretyakov Gallery, and it's all the halls are open. There's a couple rooms devoted to Socialist Realist art, and then most of the rest of the art after uh, that period is underground art and avant-garde art. So there's a there's a narrative there. So that that kind of really got me thinking initially about this this issue and subsequent travels to the region that you could see more and more places like that and more and more difficult um, decisions like that one. The, The real interest in the project began because I've been fortunate enough to take part in several study abroad workshops that include Miami students and faculty, including ones to Berlin in 2009, which was deliberately planned to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall, and then Ukraine and Poland in 2011. So I visited museums in each place. It's the sort of thing one does on a faculty student workshop. And I could see how other countries tried to wrestle with and narrate through the recent past, um, and specifically in museum form. So that, that's the long-term interest, I guess. I, I didn't necessarily think that would go anywhere in the form of a book, but there is a very specific instance where I can date the beginning of this project and that was a call for papers on the topic for a the topic of museums after communism for a panel at the uh, world Slavic conference in Japan in 2015. And then won the next year for the association of the study of nationalities annual conference in New York. And it, because there were calls for papers on these subjects, it convinced me that there was something to the topic of new museums. And a number of scholars were writing about museums in memory. and memory. And it's worth noting everyone on those panels, those two panels participated, Julie Fedor, Daria Mattingly, Muriel, Muriel Blige, um, all participating in these two works. So I, I felt like there was a community of scholars out there that were also interested in the subject. And that's what launched my decision to edit a book about it. Um, I was specifically interested, you asked about why I wrote three chapters. I was specifically interested in writing about the Ukrainian museum, the Blonsky prison museum in Lviv, because I visited it in 2011, was really struck by it in all kinds of ways and wanted to work through it in my own mind. And then the Polish Uprising Museum, which I also visited in 2011, the uh, GDR Museum that I wrote about came after some initial attempts to find it someone else to write it fell through, so it, it allowed me to use my rusty German again. So there's you know long term interests, and then the uh, very specific, gosh, there's other people out there doing this. Let's let's put together a book.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, and I'm a big museophile, so. I really enjoyed reading the book and look forward to visiting actually most of these museums because I've only been to a few of them. Okay, so I was wondering if we could start by having you discuss um, the major question or major questions around which this book is framed.
0: I I think the big question is maybe the obvious one, but still an important one. How how have post-communist states attempted to remember the communist era in museums? I mean, we all know museums are important locations for how public memory gets mapped out. So how have these new states, these newly independent states, tried to deal with this this recent past? Um, but, you know, with, with that big question out of the way, I think one of the, the things that the book tries to cover is to answer the question, what what sort of trends do we see in these remembrance practices? Are there similarities across countries that we might expect or might not expect? Um, and then, of course, with that comes, you, you said two or three questions, you know, what what problems are evident in the museums that have appeared since 1989 or 1991, you know, what's not in the museums, for example, or what's ignored or pushed into the room that no one ever goes into, for example. And then I think the last question that's worth posing here is that, you know, how have Russian museums sought to capture the past? Because there's very specific elements to the ways that Russian remembrance practices have developed since 1991. Back to that Tretyakov Gallery story I began with, those empty halls have now been filled, but they were empty for a while because it You know, the the answer to the question, how do we deal with socialist realist art hadn't yet been answered in 1999 even.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciate that the book is so expansive that it covers, you know, pretty much all of Eastern Europe so that you can make these comparisons and really understand how regime change uh, after 1989, 1991 um, affects the representation of the past, and then, of course, the various actors that are involved in this process. Okay, so let's move on to the sections of the book, and the book is cleverly broken down into exhibits. So you've got exhibit halls, right? A, B, C, D, E. So let's start, obviously, with exhibit A, the Hall of Genocide, Occupation, and Terror. Can you discuss the approaches and aims of museums that fall into this category and provide a couple of examples?
0: Absolutely. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you found the approach clever. Uh, that was a late-breaking idea I had to kind of organize the book and think of it as an exhibit itself. So there's different halls and exhibits, as you said. And it's also worth saying that I, I was quite pleased that I found so many willing participants when I sent out some emails, contacted friends, contacted friends of friends through colleagues, and got so many people willing to write about so many different museums. So it, it, it really does cover the region pretty well, I think. I'm pleased about that. Uh, but to answer your question, I the first hall is it covers the most prominent theme in re- museum remembrance, and that's been to focus on the Soviet period as one of occupation, one defined above all by violence directed usually against a particular national group, and therefore one that even some museums claim might be genocidal, um, fitting the specific term of attempting to eradicate in whole or in part a national group through practices of violence uh, waged by the Soviet regime. So. These aren't insignificant or even necessarily false views, but they, they do attempt to mask other more complicated histories, which is what I think the chapters in that exhibit hall or that section deal with. Uh, that, that section has five case studies. Neringa Klumbite's chapter on the Lithuanian Museum of Occupations and Freedom Fights, which I've also been to. You mentioned, Jill, that you've been to some of these. Um, Mate Zambori's chapter on the House of Terror in Budapest, one of the few I haven't been to my chapter on the Lunsky Prison Museum in Lviv. Steve Barnes wrote about two gulag museums in Kazakhstan, and Katja Wetzel wrote about the uh, Riga's Cheka House. So to to go into a couple of the examples, as you asked, uh, in the Baltic Republics, uh, each country established what were called an occupation museum, and all usually had that word in the title. With the Lithuanian version, the one that Neringa Klumbite wrote about, even calling it the Museum of Genocide Victims. And the focus in this museum, which is indicative of all, the, all five of the museums, really, in this section, was on the Soviet invasion and occupation of the country. In the case of Lithuania, after the Nazi-Soviet pact, and then therefore the waves of deportations of Lithuanian intellectuals and nationalists that followed that first occupation of the Soviet regime. And then, of course, the continued imprisonment deportations and suppression of Lithuanian independence after 1945 all the way until 1990, 1991, when the Soviet Union broke apart. So the the basic message in that Lithuanian Museum of Genocide Victims was, of course, victimization. Again, truthful, of course, Lithuanians were victimized by the Soviet regime, deported. Um, It's hard to find anyone in Lithuania that didn't have a family member deported, um, by the Soviet regime. But it also, and herein lies the challenge and the problem, it pushed collaboration or even accommodation under the rug. So the focus in that museum was on the way the Soviet state wronged Lithuanians. And it also meant that the, that was the genocide covered in it. Thus, what what happened in World War II, for example, to Lithuanian Jews wasn't initially discussed. And as, as Neringa Klamite notes, however, because of criticism of this approach, that is the, the overwhelming focus on Lithuanians as victims of a Soviet regime and ethnic Lithuanians more specifically. The museum has evolved and even renamed itself in 2018, the museum of occupations and freedom fights, illustrating the, some of the challenges in doing this. The portal is now in occupations and there are now two displays. They're small, but they're still there devoted to the Holocaust. So, you know, Neringa covers a potential problem, as she asks in her chapter, what what does it mean for a new country to legitimize pain and suffering as the key to sovereignty? As she writes, the museum condemns terror that causes pain, expresses sympathy for the suffering people, and yet also legitimates suffering as a path to sovereignty. She calls her chapter Sovereign Pain. It's very evocative, very interesting. Um, The second example, maybe the second example is easier for me because I wrote the chapter on the Lonsky Prison Museum in Lviv, Ukraine, which focuses quite specifically on the NKVD massacres that occurred there in June 1941. As again, an initial Soviet occupation ended and as the Nazi occupation was about to be established. Um, Before the Wehrmacht arrived in Lviv, Ukraine in June 1941, the Soviet secret police murdered all the prisoners in this prison, many of whom were Ukrainian nationalists. That's why they're being held there. And the discovery of these massacres first by local residents and then the Wehrmacht initiated a a pogrom in the city of Lviv directed against the Jewish residents. But the museum, the museum that exists now in Lviv, the Lonsky Prison Museum, focuses primarily on those June 1941 massacres, not on the subsequent use of the site by the Gestapo, which is mentioned but not focused on, or much on the KGB's use of the site, again mentioned but not focused on. So that prison museum is devoted to seeing Ukrainian nationalists as martyrs for the nation and the Soviet era as one of occupation and terror. That's why the section is called what it is. And again, these these events happen, but it's the focus here that matters.
1: And so you talk about some of the museums that employ a double genocide approach. And so which of the ones that are investigated in this section would be reflective of that?
0: I think that's primarily an approach that's been significant in the Baltic regions, and um, it's been made by many politicians and public figures. And the idea here is to make Nazi crimes and Soviet crimes equivalent morally, historically, and even legally. And the byproduct of this idea, and the, and the reason why it's so problematic, is that the double genocide concept can often be used to downgrade the significance of the Holocaust, and with it, um, sweep issues of collaboration under the rug. So it, in a sense, it boils down to fostering the idea that the Baltic Republics and most of Eastern Europe, and the focus in this mentality is on the dominant ethnic group in, the, in specific countries, uh, were victimized by two genocidal systems, making these states, uh, as, as some articles claim, the, the winners of the suffering Olympics. And in its crudest conception, it explicitly excludes Jews from the nation. Um, and states even in the, in the worst form of this thinking that Lithuanian Jews, for example, were, are seen as active communists, that they welcome Soviet occupations, they were members of the NKVD. So the victims of these two genocides are ethnic Lithuanians in this version of the story, or, or so on and so forth, if you take it to include the Latvians or Estonians or Poles. Um, now, the museums themselves don't necessarily make these claims. They're not explicit. But many critics have rightly seen the use of the word genocide, especially in the Lithuanian Museum, um, or used on the walls of exhibits as, as sort of bolstering this double genocide narrative. Um, the Lonsky Prison Museum, the one I just mentioned a moment ago, for example, focuses on the murder or punishment of ethnic Ukrainians, not the Ukrainian Jews who were also murdered there or in other sites around Lviv. So it's a, bit, it's a dangerous, I think, narrative that, that filters through some of these museums.
1: So not only does this approach not acknowledge the suffering of Jews, and of course the role of the dominant ethnic population in in certain cases meeting out terror uh, towards them, but it appropriates the term to apply to the dominant ethnic group. That's correct. Yeah,
0: and then you know what it also does is it, it. it eliminates the need for discussion about collaboration right. um, among local populations in the Holocaust. So if, if you've been victimized, and if you've been doubly victimized in genocides, then you really don't need to think too thoroughly about whether or not a member of your family or someone in your community also helped the Nazis um, perpetrate their genocide. Because you've, you've been solely a, a, a victim of genocides as a Lithuanian, as a Latvian, as a Pole, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So it offers a very uncomplicated portrait of the past and one in which members of the dominant population don't have to revisit their past and feel any sense of guilt or shame. They can just move on and then they've got a narrative in which they can build based on their victimization and, uh, you know, excludes uh, then complex representations of the past, both in public spaces uh, and also I would imagine, in the textbooks as well, uh, reflect this. That's
0: a, Yeah, that's exactly right. And, it, 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 you know, Yulia uh, uh, Shukas who's a, a really interesting author based in the University of Missouri, who's a Canadian-Lithuanian, um, wrote a really interesting book about her grandmother and grandfather. I forget the title already, but Yulia Shukas, you, you should look it up, in part because she deals with this... Um, by you, I mean listeners, uh, deals with this issue here. And what she discovered is that her grandfather, who had always been presented to her as a hero because he fought for independence in, in Lithuania, and he did, of course, um, was also a participant in the rounding up of Lithuanian Jews and their murder. So he's, he's both a victim and a victimizer. And that kind of nuance, that complication, that messy personal history, is, as you just described, Jill, is, is what's not being discussed in these museums.
1: Right. And um, that gets me to my next question about the ways in which these museums tell us uh, as much about the past as about the present.
0: Indeed, I, I think in its most basic approach, most of the museums covered in the book are attempts to shape memories, new narratives, and even sources of unity in these countries, particularly as a means to separate themselves from longstanding Russian or even Soviet domination. Um, the, and, and an understandable need to separate themselves from this. The, the problem of being a small country like Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia, or having histories that seem to be connected solely to Saint Petersburg or Moscow, as is the case in Poland, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. I get, you know, I get students all the time that only tend to see Ukrainian history or Polish history or Baltic history as important when it's connected to Russia. So these. These museums try to do uh, you know, a, an act of separation. And, and in the introduction to the, to the volume, I write about how these new museums of communism try to supplant the communist museum that offered didactic narratives of the past. I think the Lenin Museum in Moscow, which no longer exists, is, is the best example of this. And I, I use a, a series of docents, what I call docents, um, Sergei Dovlatov and his suitcase from his novel by that name, slavanka Drakulich's guided tour through the Museum of Communism, and the Ukrainian novelist Oksana Zabushka's *The Museum of Abandoned Secrets*, her novel, to show how the foundation of these museums um, represented long buried, often suppressed stories—very personal ones, stories of those being victimized or wronged—and um, you know, these aren't these are sentiments not unique to the region per se. I mean, you could think of the. New Smithsonian museums, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the National Museum of the American Indian, the newly announced National Museum of the American Latino, and the National Women's History Museum, um, all as ones that seek to integrate voices and experiences that have often been ignored and, and as in response to current political concerns. The, the approaches in the region covered in the book, however, are, are made within the context, though, of very specific national and local politics. And the attempts to boost support through patriotism, especially uncomplicated patriotism, by shifting attention away from the messy aspects of the past, as we just talked about. Um, and they're particularly problematic, last part of the answer to your question here, they're particularly p- problematic in places where new national memory organizations, even government organizations devoted to national memory, have appeared and explicitly sought to to guide the understanding of the past to present day patriotic positions. Um, I mentioned the Institute of National Remembrance in Poland and the Institute of National Memory in Ukraine, for example, which which those titles sound Orwellian and often act that way.
1: Yeah, and of course, you see this throughout the region where institutes are engaging in similar practices and promoting a particular narrative of the past, a, a usable past, we can call it, in which shame is excised, guilt is excised, and the past is supposed to be a source of pride. Um, and of course, one that also then focuses on victimization, but certainly not culpability.
0: Exactly. I, I think- and where there's a, a government organization, a you know National Memory Institute that oversees it to make sure that these narratives are in place. I and mean, that's what's different in this region than, say, the instances of um, Smithsonian museums, which arise out of roughly similar analogous concerns, but where there's, there's not a, a, a government memory um, office that makes sure that it's Any problematic aspects that were going to potentially appear in these museums are going to be swept away. And that's what's happening in the region.
1: Certainly, and especially places like Poland and Hungary, where scholars are experiencing more and more constraints with respect to what they can actually study, what projects get funded, and they're very much circumscribed by what is being dictated at the top. Exactly. Well, this gets me to a question about uh, your chapter, one of your chapters. So chapter three, uh, which examines the Lonsky prison in Lviv. And you use the term memory laundering. So can you elaborate on this term?
0: Sure. So it's it's a term I coined to cover who is uh, the most controversial figure in contemporary Ukraine, at least in terms of the politics of memory and ongoing memory wars in the region that we've, we've just talked about. And that's, of course, Stepan Bandera the Ukrainian nationalist leader who helped found the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists the OUN and later the Ukrainian Insurgent Army UPA and sought to establish an independent Ukrainian state free from Polish and Russian control but an ethnically pure Ukrainian state that was Bandera's motivation and that's what the OUN was founded to do and depending on how you see things i mean it, it worst, I guess, Bandera's followers collaborated with, with the Nazis during World War II. At, at best, I mean, if this is even a best case scenario, he used the Nazi occupation to help push the agenda of making an ethnically pure Ukrainian state. And now, and this was even more complicated because Bandera himself was in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II, but his followers tried to purify U- Ukraine by massacring Poles and Jews and In the midst of World War II, so he's you know Bandera's bequeathed a very violent, complicated legacy, but one in present-day Ukraine that many want to boil down to one key factor, and that is that you know he's seen as his primary goal is one to bring about an independent Ukraine. Therefore, he's one of the founding fathers or founding participants in the in an independent Ukraine created after 1991, and thus Bandera is our hero. There's many signs and graffiti when I was in Lviv in 2011 that just said, you know, Bandera, Nashkoroy our hero. And under Viktor Yushchenko's presidency, when he, when Yushchenko turned to the right and sought more support from nationalists, this is in the wake of the Orange Revolution, uh, Yushchenko named Bandera a hero of Ukraine, which, which made that notion that had been scrawled through graffiti, a public one and allowed for statues to be built to him, streets to be renamed after him. So the Lonsky prison museum, which I write about in that chapter is on Bandera street. And that prison museum was also established in this climate. So Bandera had been held there in 1936 during his second trial. After being arrested for his nationalist activities, he was tried in Warsaw for trying to bring about an independent Ukraine. That trial was seen by many ethnic Ukrainians as as fixed. So the Polish Republic, that region was in in Poland at the time, the interwar period, Polish Republic brought him to Lviv, retried him. He was held in the Lonsky prison. And that trial then is where he uttered the, the phrase glory to Ukraine, which became the rallying cry of Ukrainian nationalists who followed him. So it's, I mean, this is a complicated story. I've given you a short gloss on it. A lot more can be said about it, but the memory laundering comes in because of this short version of the story because Bandera's name, his face, and his experiences are included in the exhibits in this museum along with the victims of the 1941 massacre. So he wasn't there in 1941. He was in a Nazi concentration camp, but many of his followers were held in the prison and massacred by Soviet secret policemen and, and, that is represented in the museum walls but is actually placed in some exhibits on a list of well-known ukrainian dissidents writers artists so on and so forth who were imprisoned at lonsky by the kgb from the 1950s to to 1980s so in other words is laundered here that is his significance is laundered in memory he becomes a, a victim of genocide and occupation not a victimizer or perpetrator you know, he's placed first on a list of fighters for independence, Bandera to Vyacheslav Tronovil, the the dissident. Uh,
1: yeah, so he assumes a completely new legacy and persona.
0: Correct. Again, where um, his, his violent actions and the violent actions of his followers are scrubbed out. That's, that's That's not focused on at all.
1: Cleansing of the past. Okay, let's move on to Exhibit B, which is the Hall of National Tragedies. Can you tell us how national tragedy is represented in uh, these chapters, and which group is featured? Um, and then, of course, related to that, who is left out? Which stories are left out?
0: Great questions. Yes, um, the this section has two chapters: one that I wrote on the Warsaw Uprising Museum in Poland, and one by Daria Mattingly on the National Holodomor Victims Memorial Museum in Kiev. And the events they commemorate are therefore much more specific, specifically located in history than exhibit A's, which where the museums tend to focus on the entirety of the communist era as one of occupation or genocide. Even in the case of the Lonsky prison, which is hones in on June 1941, but it does so to explain all of 1939 to 41, first Soviet occupation, and 1945 to 1991. That's how Banderas laundered into that history. So the the Warsaw Uprising of 1944 and the Holodomor, the famine of 1932 and thirty three are presented in these two museums as the most important single events in how modern Polishness and Ukrainianness need to be understood by the public. So the, the, to, to look at these two um, briefly, the, the uprising in Poland, of course, took place from August to October 1944. It was a revolt by the resistance home army to, to liberate Poland from Nazi occupation before the Red Army arrived. They were camped just across the river. It failed And the rebellion was crushed by the Nazis, who then turned much of the city to rubble. I mean, this is an important event, a tragic event. And the museum commemorates that event as sacred, one that taps into longstanding ideas of Polishness. The Holodomor, of course, is the famine that resulted from Stalin's collectivization policies in Ukraine, another horrific Famine happened in Kazakhstan, of course, where 3.5 million plus people died. And that memorial museum is also presented as a sacred place, one where you have a chance to hear from those who died and learn from their tragedies. Um, The same is true, I suppose, in the Uprising Museum too, a lot of focus on voices and personal experiences. And in the introduction to the section, I, I refer to these as sites of glorification and victimization. So they're sites that let suppressed, silenced voices speak, Um, because the the Polish communist state, of of course, downplayed 1944, because at its core it aimed to create an independent Polish state, free from any other outside influence. And the Soviet state didn't permit discussions about the Holodomor because the collectivization campaign was the founding part of how the Soviet state industrialized. So these two sites allow these aggrieved memories to come to the fore. And you asked about who's left out and what the problems are in them. So they're, they're not without their problematic aspects too, Uh, The Uprising Museum doesn't explore conformity and in some ways seeks to challenge what many in Poland believe is a greater focus on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943. It's mentioned in the Uprising Museum, but not very much. So it's an attempt to turn the interest and historical significance to the Warsaw Uprising of 1944, and therefore to more ethnic Catholic Poles. And the Holodomor Memorial Museum, as Daria writes, quite well highlights uh, what she calls the perils of an ethnocentric narrative where the victims are all passive ethnic Ukrainians and the villains are all Soviets and doesn't mention how non-Ukrainian populations living in the region also experienced famine or how Ukrainians might have helped um, in the collectivization campaigns. It's sort of this black and white, pure villain, pure victim narrative memorialized there.
1: Right. So that the perpetrator is always of a different uh, ethnic group, right?
0: Usually, or just, you know, a Soviet. I mean, it's just sort of left yeah. to your imagination and the, and the vague. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I assigned the, the chapter on the famine and my students really uh, engaged well with it. So I really appreciated that chapter. I was going to ask you a bit also about how experience and affect are central to these museums, right? So it's not necessarily about or simply about uh, knowledge acquisition, but it's about one's effective right responses to the museum exhibit and how the museum is organized and designed.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've, I've visited both of these places. Obviously I wrote about the Uprising Museum, but I've also been to the Holodomor National Museum and Memorial. And and they're very effective in how they capture affect and they're they're very moving places. And one interesting aspect I think to build on your question, that, that some of the museums in the volume tackle, and the Morse Uprising Museum I think is most notable in this regard, is how they adopt practices pioneered in museum sites elsewhere, specifically the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I mean, anyone who goes there knows you get a passport, so you follow a personal life as you move through the exhibits, and it really does attempt to affect you emotionally. In, in the Uprising Museum, you take a calendar page off the wall from that day um, in 1944, or leading up to 1944, and you learn about some details of someone's life or the weather, things like that. So you're already kind of connected to very specific personal individual stories. And, and the founding director of the Uprising Museum wanted, specifically said when he founded it, he wanted to put visitors in a certain mood because he wanted to reach younger Poles and connect them emotionally to the past. And as I write about in the chapter, for anyone who's ever been to the Uprising Museum, right in the middle, as you walk in, there's this the beating heart, it's what it's called. And it's an installation that has the the days of the uprising inscribed on it. There's there's bullet holes, I mean not really bullet holes, but you know, what's meant to be bullet holes on it. You you're supposed to put your ear to it or you touch it, and you either feel or hear a patriotic heartbeat. So the idea is that the, the beating heart of Polishness is what fueled the uprising in 1944 and what continued to fuel poles after it after the uprising was crushed there's a lot of hands-on exhibits in that museum i'm um, including a recreation of the sewers where the home army hid out in and used to fight the uprising and the, the lights are turned off at certain points and you're invited to kind of crawl through them just like a, a member of the home army would have the floors are even evocative with I mean, the entryway has these recreated cobblestones of the streets of old Poland. So you're, you're meant throughout to feel, to feel, you feel emboldened, you feel patriotic, you feel heroic. Sometimes you feel angry. Um, you can even fuel yourself with patriotic food in the recreated interwar cafe that evokes that time and place. So very much a, an attempt to, to build a connection to the past through emotion, through affect.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think I'd want to eat the food that's offered in the cafe. And and I guess it's a little more challenging for the the, the museum and the famine because it's not yet completed, right?
0: Right, right. Um, so they're still counting. And that's one of the things that the, that museum in particular is doing. Um, one of the noble things that Museum and Memory Site is doing is trying to finally put all the names and to the victims of the famine and to... to constantly scroll through all those names. So I think when I went there in 2011, I think the number had just surpassed 2.5 million. It's now over 3.5 million. So it's this ongoing work of, of tragedy, really.
1: Yeah. And it seems like the museum functions as more of a memory site, right? Where there are commemorations rather than what we typically associate with the museum exhibits and such.
0: That's correct. Yeah, it's small as as a museum. It's small. Although it, it does have museum in the title, it's it's much more a memorial site. But you know, where the uprising museum is much larger and more of a, a typical museum, especially a typical twenty first century museum, it, it's also a memorial site too. I mean, they're both dedicated to one single event as a stand-in for um, larger experiences and events in twentieth century history in those two countries.
1: Yeah, when I visited the Warsaw Uprising Monument in fall of 2019, people had placed flowers and notes alongside the monument. So clearly, people were still engaging with it, and it was a very powerful memory site.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's again worth saying uh, they're both very moving, um, and yeah. both do speak to really important events, tragic events, violent events. Um, so that you know, the approach in the two chapters is, of course, the you know good scholarly criticism, but I think at least I hope, both try to understand these um, tragic events for what they are. I mean, these are involve family members of people who come today and lay flowers down, participate in some of the activities um, and public events that both sites put on.
1: Yeah, what I found particularly interesting is that the notes that people had left behind were in Polish, were in English, were in a number of languages, and people had clearly visit were visiting Poland as, as tourists as well. And at they were struck by you know, the museum, the monument, um, and that for them, this was an important memory site and they wanted to share their sentiments about it. Okay. So let's move on to exhibit C, the Hall of Everyday Life. And maybe you can talk about the purpose of these museums. And also you talk about um, pieces of memory. So what are these pieces of memory?
0: Yeah. So here again in... in... The Hall of Everyday Life Exhibit C, there there are two museums featured, the Museum of Communism in Prague, which was founded in 2001, and the GDR Museum in Berlin, which was founded in 2006. And the former one, as Muriel Blav writes, um, grew out of a desire, as she says, to show tourists what communism was about. And it focused, at least initially, on a blend of everyday objects and recreated workspaces there was a kind of a, a factory room you know a typical factory room from the czech communist era there were also interrogation rooms that the czech secret police would have used recreated in this museum and it from the get-go found in 2001 was was often accused of being too kitschy too nostalgic um, especially by czech political figures and scholars in part because the initial location of the museum was famously located as all the ads said above the mcdonald's next to the casino right in the heart of prague at the bottom of Wenceslas square and it featured very kitschy ads although ones i loved i have to say um and in part these criticisms came because of course this museum seemingly did not focus on czech victimization enough like other museums in the region focused on this national victimization the the gdr museum uh developed also as a well Interestingly, as a, as a backlash against what its founders thought was an oversimplified focus on terror as the essence of the East German communist history, one that was embodied, at least in this view, in the Stasi Museum, the former headquarters of the Stasi, the secret police in East Germany. And as I describe in that chapter, it's kind of a war, but we might see this as the war between what's the better version of East German history, Goodbye Lenin, the film Goodbye Lenin, or the film The Lives of Others. That is, is the film about everyday life and loss, or is it about interrogation, terror, surveillance? So the, the GDR museum is also, you know, features everyday objects, That that's the pieces of memory. Um, everything from a recreated kitchen that has all the communist era plates, knives, appliances, TV, um, to records like from the Pudis, that is these these little pieces that individually speak to someone who used them, listened to them, um, partook with in them during the communist era, but collectively they're sort of a, a, a pastiche of memory. And it too has been accused of promoting kitchen nostalgia or of whitewashing the more violent aspects of the communist era. Um, worth noting here, as I alluded to, the, the Museum of Communism in Prague has subsequently moved to new digs. They're nicer and bigger. But it's changed its focus a little bit. It's focused a little more on the repressive aspects of Czech communist history to counter those criticisms.
1: So one could argue that these museums of everyday life are a part of the broader conversation about the past, and they're kind of responding then to these other museums that focus uh, purely or mainly primarily on victimization.
0: Indeed, that's that's exactly right. right. They arose uh, in, as already as... Places like the Occupation Museums had already opened in the Baltic Republics so or the House of Terror had, had been founded in, in Budapest. So this was seen as a backlash to that by local, um, actually private, local individuals who said this. that's not what the communist era was about or entirely about. There were times where we were happy, where we got married. And you know, I think that sentiment is captured quite powerfully in, the, in Goodbye Lynn in the movie, which was very popular in the region.
1: So would you argue that these museums of everyday life are also presenting a selective um, or reflect a selective version of lived reality during the communist period? Or do you think they do a better job of um, providing a more kind of comprehensive portrait that acknowledges the various ways in which people experienced communism?
0: Yes, that's that's the key question, isn't it, Jill? Um, I, I think it depends on your viewpoint you know and so maybe the answer to the question is other questions so is it is it spreading a harmful form of nostalgia if you drive the trabi simulator or touch the actual trabi car in the ddr museum the gdr museum in berlin so the trabant the popular car there's a trabi simulator you can pretend to drive this communist car or actually touch one is that or is it you know turning complex history into kitsch if you do so as a tourist as i did um or what, what about listening in on a recreated stasi room that which is also in the gdr museum does that somehow whitewash or i don't know make that very real often violent horrific experience into something you know fun for tourists or if you say buy i mean the 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 museum of communism in prague has a has a really fun gift shop where you can buy you know communist era toilet paper if you buy it and here i'll say i did buy some communist era toilet paper when i was there last what does that mean exactly so Critics will say, you're making the communist experience into a fun, playful arena, and that that's bad. Proponents will say that the everyday was, of course, part of life too, and that a little bit of nostalgia perhaps helps you get over the past. Um, In terms of your very specific question, I I don't find these museums too problematic, in part because they, they do what their critics say they don't. There are exhibits... Um, and rooms devoted to repression, terror, violence, deportation, these sorts of things. But they're, they're part of the larger experience of, of communism. So that is, for, for many, you could go there and, of course, understand that a member of your family was arrested and interrogated by the Stasi. You can see how that operated. You can see how it's a significant part of the communist era in East Germany. But you can also see, balanced with that, um, a typical living room that someone would have lived in at the time or your Trabant car. Um, So I think it'll, you know, it allows the individual visitor to make up their own mind about what, what the meaning here is.
1: So they provide a more complex portrait than the ones, uh, the museums that we've discussed previously, that the narrative is just very nationalistic, very focused on victimization. And really there isn't room uh, for the messiness, right. And then the different perspectives.
0: Right, at least as often told in the museums covered in the book. Um, there are, I mean, I, I guess I could point out here that to play devil's advocate with myself, not covered in the book, but maybe in a in a later blog post, the the ninth fort museum outside of Kaunas, Lithuania, um, which I visited in 2016. So this is a site that was built as a fort in the Russian Empire to defend in a war, and it was used as a fort during World War One. So Russian imperial soldiers fought in it, defended against German armies. And then in the interwar period, and especially under Nazi occupation, after the interwar period, it, it was a convenient site for Nazi occupiers using local collaborators to round up Jewish populations, put them in the fort. There was a massacre there in the fort of the Jewish residents there. And then later in the communist period, it was used as a prison by the KGB. So it's, it's these overlapping histories that are all traumatic and speak to the messiness of that place and that time. And the interesting thing about the museum is that while the f- the focus is still on the Lithuanian experience of deportation, all of those histories are covered and covered quite well. So it's it's possible to offer layers, I think, um, in a way that the maybe the everyday museums do. And and I do understand the criticisms that for some people, especially some who who were particularly targeted by the Stasi or a secret police in any country that may be focusing on toilet paper or trabbies is, is too kitschy.
1: Right. And also the concern that it kind of fetishizes this history and it's just for these, you know, Western audiences, right? Exactly. Um, so people come from the West and that was going to be a follow-up question. You know, what are the, what would, do we have any sense of who's visiting these uh, everyday life museums and this issue of, you know, to what degree are they just moneymakers
0: Right. So um, in the case of the GDR Museum and the Museum of Communism in Prague, the primary visitors are tourists, which is interesting, but also very problematic for, I I think, reasons you articulated.
1: Great. So let us move on then to the Exhibit D, which is the Hall of Russian Memory. So can you say a few words about the museums that fall under this category?
0: I can. Uh, This was a one of the more interesting decisions I had to make and there one of the um, peer reviews I received on the volume suggested that uh, there shouldn't be a separate Russian hall um, so but I decided to go ahead and make it that way and, and, and in part because you know one of the guides uh, the the scholarly guides throughout this book is Tony Jutt, the late great Tony Jutt, whose article the past is another country I, I think still powerfully describes the tendency and European post-war memory to, to blame another place for the traumas of the 20th century. So usually it's the Nazis or the Soviets. As, as we can now maybe understand in some of the museums we've discussed, you know, the, the double genocide narrative suggests we, were, we as Lithuanians or Latvians were victimized by both Nazis and Soviets and that's who we are as a people. That, that's understanding ourselves as a people through this these other countries impacting us. And it, you know, allows for um, no discussions therefore about any of the complicated aspects of the past the personal histories of the, the way people could be victims and victimizers but Russia of course the post communist russian state couldn't adopt this tactic you don't you can't really blame yourself in any meaningful way so that, you know while the museums in this hall have echoes of those elsewhere they do have differences so that there's three museums covered one is the state museum of the gulag which is a state-run museum that took over a privately run museum that seeks to understand, of course, the place of the gulag in Soviet history and in post-Soviet memory. And as Jeff Hardy, who wrote the really great chapter there about this museum says, it threads a very fine needle, but does so pretty well given the context and circumstances of Russia of the day, because it's both palatable to the state and to human rights groups. Um, although that threading of the needle has its challenges as he discusses in his chapter. That The second museum covered there is a little more like the Holodomor one in that it's it's, it's the Butovo shooting range, which is not a museum per se, although one was initially planned there. It's a memorial site primarily where it's where the NKVD shot people during the purges, the Stalinist purges. And it's affiliated with the Russian Orthodox Church, and um, who had discussions about placing a museum there, but instead has built new churches and other commemorative sites on that location that articulate a notion of martyrdom and suffering so it's similar in that respect to places like the Holodomor site but that's fine if the victim there was orthodox which is what's commemorated there and many priests and orthodox believers were among the victims at the Butovo shooting range but what if what if you were not what if you were Jewish or atheist or someone else didn't believe in orthodoxy and julie fedor and thomas snagan who wrote the chapter they they walk us really eloquently through the thorny, sometimes problematic relationship between the Russian state and the Orthodox church um, over that site. And they interpret it in the end as a kind of Christian museum. We might even say an Orthodox museum. So not a museum per se, but one that that often acts as a museum. And then the last chapter, the last site covered is, is Roman Abramov's um, chapter on the Museum of Soviet Arcade Games in Moscow. There's also a branch in St. Petersburg. I think there's one in kazan as well um anyway it's on the moscow one and it's where you have the chance to use communist era copex to play classic communist era arcade games such as sea battle and where you can relive your childhood or happy memories and it's one that also much like other sites has this um i don't know this ambiance of nostalgia and whether or not that's okay is it okay to play a soviet era arcade game using soviet era copex
1: it's kind of like a living museum right It is. (laughs) Because you're experiencing the time and, you know, obviously using the currency and putting yourself in that situation. And it's a lighthearted take on the past. um, But is there anything necessarily wrong with that? Although I was kind of surprised it's considered an actual museum, you know what I mean? Because it seems so um, experiential that, I don't know, it just seems like... um, something that is just resurrected for pleasure.
0: That's right. And it, it is interesting. But, and yet the title of the site is the Museum of Soviet mm-hmm. Arcade Games. So it does try and convey that. I think that's, that's a really interesting point.
1: And that's a private institution, right? So I wonder where the, the funds go then, ultimately, the profits go.
0: Right. It's interesting. It's worth pointing out here that the two everyday museums, that is the GDR Museum and the Museum of Communism in Prague, and the Museum of Soviet Arcade Games are all privately run. In fact, the tendency has been for these museums of everyday life that focus on objects um, are mostly privately run. And the museums that are focus on terror and victimization and horrific events are often state run.
1: Right, and the statue park in, uh, outside of Budapest, too, is is privately run. Correct. I wanted to just go back to the Gulag uh, Museum, Moscow State uh, Museum of Gulag History, and just ask you about the outreach uh, that the museum does, because I was really impressed with that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. Sure. Um... Yeah. A lot of these museums do have really significant public outreach components though. The, the mm-hmm. Uprising Museum in Poland, as, as you mentioned, the, the Holodomor Museum and Memorial in Kyiv, and the Gulag Museum in Moscow does too. Um, so the, its young director, Roman Romanov, hosts a number of discussions on really challenging topics. He doesn't shy away from difficult subject material. Uh, the museum hosts movie screenings, they host poetry readings, they sponsor walking tours throughout Moscow of sites associated with with uh, repression. They have scholarly seminars, public meetings. They also um, conduct oral history. So they try to compile personal stories that will later make their way into the museum. They, they were very active during the pandemic. They had a number of really interesting Zoom events. Um, so it is it is part of the way a lot of these museums see themselves. And it, it is worth noting because it's it's... It's a, certainly a positive aspect. Even in the some of the more problematic museums that have these established narratives of victimization, they still have really significant, interesting, moving, um, nuanced public events.
1: Well, and I think this is significant, right, because it, it allows individuals to engage with the topics undertaken by the museum, right, that are the focus of the exhibits, but also see how that history is an ongoing project, right? Writing these histories, um, reinterpreting them um, and recovering voices, right? So that it's not something that's fixed. It's something that's ongoing and that they can be kind of active participants in this process.
0: Exactly. And that there's
1: a dialogic, right? There's an exchange between those who exhibit and and engage in history, but also those who are there to uh, observe it and interact with it.
0: Exactly. And something, you know, with the, oftentimes implicit, but even sometimes explicit view that these events and this collecting of new stories and collecting of new objects are, are going to help the museum evolve across time, which I think is a positive thing.
1: Definitely. Okay. So let's move on to Exhibit E and why not uh, end with Stalin, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Exhibit E is uh, focuses on rotating exhibits And it looks at the changing memories and shifting interpretations that are the focus of these two museums in in, in this section. So it's the Joseph Stalin Museum in in Georgia and the uh, Vabamu uh, Museum of Occupations and Freedom in Tallinn, Estonia. So could you talk about one or even both of these museums and then how this notion of kind of changing memories and shifting interpretations?
0: sure yeah this 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 uh section the rotating exhibits came because even after commissioning one of the essays the one on the Tallinn museum it had rebranded itself so the um laurie weeks who wrote the chapter had to shift her own focus also also worth pointing out while the book was in press the museum of communism in prague changed a little bit and the uh Lithuanian Museum of Genocide Victims changed its name. So, you know, I I sort of thought of this much like there are exhibits in museums that come and stay for a while and then shift out, that this is one way of thinking about it. Um, And in many ways, it, it sort of captures the fact that the book is itself a snapshot of how memory practices have first were established in the first decades after communism, but that they change. So that... The two specific examples, you know, the one in, in Georgia is is one that attempts to answer the question. You know, here here get your sound of music voice on. What do we do with a problem like Stalin? Um, is it do you focus on occupation and violence? If you continue to operate a national museum to Stalin, does it do more harm than good? And what do you do about the Soviet era museum of Stalin's birth uh, in a post communist society? So the answer as Christine Gottfriedson writes, is that the museum kind of, I don't know if it punted is the right word here, but basically what they did is they established a new room called the Room of Repression. And that's where you enter now. So you get a little bit about Stalinist crimes and what Stalin did as a leader. And then you move into more or less the the old Soviet era museum. So it's almost like two museums in one. One that evokes uh, the other, like the, the occupation museums. And then the other is, uh, let's just... Have the old museum be the old museum, and, and the question there then, because there's always questions that come with this, is is that enough? I mean, do people go there and ignore the repression room, or do they pay attention to it, or how do you how do you combine these two almost separate sites in this one museum? The Vabamu Museum of Occupations and Freedom in Tallinn was the formerly occupation museum, and it got renamed and rebranded so that the focus in it was less on uh, victimization of one national group and more on the attempts to achieve freedom in Estonia. And therefore, you know, you accentuate the positive in it, but that too, wasn't without controversy. So a lot of critics in the region have accused it now of downplaying the violent aspects of communist life that, you know, they see Estonian history like other Baltic histories as one of of occupation across time. So recall, you know, rebranding it and calling it occupations and freedom is again doing away with that aspect of of the recent past and i think in general you know it's proof that these two examples are proof that museums like memory itself can can change it's malleable and that's what the book i think hopes to capture that they these museums can and should and do evolve
1: well, the book certainly does. Um, the question about the Stalin Museum is, though, you know, what to what extent is this kind of token, right? Acknowledging the repression. Okay, we better we better acknowledge this aspect, but we're really going to focus on, you know,
0: <laughs> that's right, yeah, because a lot of the visitors come to see, you know, this is uh, Stalin's home, and they want to see that, and they want to see, in many ways, the preserved um, Soviet era museum to Stalin, and it's worth, you know, uh, you know, I know people who visited it, and it's not like they're all neo-Stalinists. The there, in fact, many are not, but they they want to see that part of it. And you're right; this, to them, the repression room is just a token addition. It you know seems like a compromise position. It doesn't really fit very well.
1: But, well, and certainly with the glorification—I don't know if glorification is the right word—but definitely the rehabilitation of a positive image of Stalin by Putin.
0: Correct. I wonder. <laughs> correct. Yeah, and some, of course, do. Um, and do think that the repression room shouldn't have been there at all because they, they see Stalin in positive terms and many in the in Gorey, his hometown, um, the, the fact that that museum remained throughout this communist period is itself significant because they still see him as a you know the local son made good
1: certainly local pride exactly. Um, Okay, well, it's been a fascinating conversation. And I really thoroughly enjoyed the book. So thank you so much for editing it, and also writing three chapters. And of course, to your uh, contributors who wrote fascinating chapters as well. And I guess I'll finish with a final question uh, about your current project. So I I mentioned the title of your forthcoming book, but maybe you could just talk briefly about it, or even a newer project, if you'd like.
0: Sure. Well, th- th- thank you, Jill, for hosting me. It's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm also grateful that you've assigned it to your students. Um, so I, I have three things I'll mention briefly here of current projects, and one is related to the Museums of Communism. So I, I bought the museumsofcommunism.com web address and have a website, and my hope is to get more blog-like posts to it that cover more museums from places not necessarily um, covered in the book, Romania, there's a hint for you, Jill. Um, former, former Yugoslavia places. I tried to get articles to, for, but couldn't, um, and maybe even museums in smaller cities. So my hope is the website, especially as this semester ends and I have more time to work on it, will be a place where we can cover not just me, but where anyone can cover um, the evolution of some of the museums covered in the in the volume, or even offer you know a post about different museums so that you can really get an even larger range. So that's, that's one thing that the book that you mentioned at the outset is part of the Russian short series. I co-edit with Bloomsbury press along with Gina Vrutin in Illinois. And my own contribution to it will be. Um, so these are short books on big topics is the idea. My own contribution will be on the so-called history painters of the 1880s and nineties in Russia. I've always been fascinated by Vasily Surkov, or Surikov, sorry. And uh, Viktor Vasnetsov. these um, these two painters that that painted these massive canvases. I mean, you know, some like seven feet by twelve feet. Uh, morning of the Execution of the Streltsy is Surikov's famous canvas, or uh, Bugataria Heroes is Buznetsov's. That are that almost everyone in Russia knows as being quintessential Russian history painters, but they've had very little written about them in English. So I'm I'm going to write about them. Indulge myself, I guess, a bit. And then the last thing I I should say here is I have this long-term ongoing research project on Boris Yefimov, the Soviet political caricaturist, who was the principal political caricaturist for Izvestia, also worked for Krokodil. And he worked in these positions from 1922, the year he moved to Moscow, and was named principal political caricaturist all the way to 1991. So his work is the entirety of the Soviet period.
1: Wow, so lots of stuff on visual culture, which is really exciting. You know?
0: in- indeed, I guess it's been one of my f- my focal points in my scholarly career.
1: Well, I look forward to taking a look at the website um, and as it's updated and also your newer publications. so and I wish you the best of luck on those. And thank you so much for speaking with me today.
0: Thank you, Jill. It's been a pleasure.